Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Best Piece of Advice Ever, the show in which I, Daniele Fiendarka, speak to creatives about the best piece of advice they have ever been given and the impact it has had on their lives. In today's show, I'm delighted to be joined by the amazing artist Carrie Reichard, who talks about craftism, having a punk attitude and what inspires her. I hope you enjoy the show. Welcome, Carrie. A real pleasure to be speaking to, to and have you here. It seems ages since we last I last saw you at Kinsale Sharks. Um, for those that don't know you, can you please introduce yourself and say what you do? Um, well, that's a difficult one. I guess I'm an artist, craftivist, activist. Um, I've just been working, um, making art f- since I left college in the uh, beginning of 91. And so what what how what got you into art in the first place? Ooh, what got me into art? I think I kind of just fell into it. I always wanted to do film actually. Film and photography was my first love. And then I wanted to do acting and and I'd always studied film and and theater, but in reality I ended up doing an art foundation at Kingston Polytechnic. And uh, I ended up doing a degree in sculpture because I failed to get onto my fine art filmmaking course. (laughs) So, I mean, really, uh, my life is really a lot of happy accidents. I've just gone, you know, I've always wanted to be creative, but that's taken quite a strange path along the way. It's hilarious because my passion is film as well. And that's what that's really what I wanted to do in the in the first place. Uh, And is, is film still a passion for you? Yes, it is. It is. But it's changed so much because when I started film you know it was that time where you had to have access to a huge recording studio you would there's no way you could have made your own films it was very very hard to make film and now of course anyone can make anything because of uh, computers and things so it seems strange in just such a very just my lifetime it's changed so much the accessibility now to be creative I and mean, it's all we talk about is your ability to be creative the tools that you have have never been richer no i know i mean I, i'm not sure whether that's still good or bad in a sense but you know like i have loads of friends who are photographers who's you know have lost you know who are struggling to make a living with photography or any of those creative things because you know I, there was a time when i had a dark room in my parents house and so i used to like develop my own photos and again the whole idea you would have to be so careful when you took that one photo because of the you know the amount of time it would take to to go and and make that i can't think of the word now but develop that film and footage and so again now we have the complete opposite from when i was young we've got like a handful of photos from a holiday we once had and now it's almost like you know i've got hard drives full of photos that i can't even be bothered to look at because there's so many of them yeah and i think it's interesting because um we had i spoke to norman jay in previous episode and uh norman norman talks about craft yeah, and the importance of craft and what he's done. I'd love to know your your you call yourself a craftivist. Could you? Well, uh, I, I maybe, used to. I okay, actually think I'm more of an archivist now because I, you know, I, I I don't like labels. I never have. I I, I struggle with that. You're this. You're that. Yep. You know, people yeah, have yeah. said, "Oh, you're an activist. You're a craftivist. You're this." And it's like at times in my life, yes, I've really used craft with a passion to try and, uh, uh, you know, about causes that I greatly care about. But I, it doesn't sit particularly all right with me now because now I 
do earn a living, quite a good living, doing public art and community art. And um, I love doing that. But And so now I tend to, I think my passion now is to kind of try to tell the people's history or history from below or grassroots history and try and get that solid and permanent onto the streets. So can you give some can you give some examples of some of your work? So even from okay. So at the moment, um, at the moment, I'm working with Karen Francesca, who I did my degree with. So I've worked with for my entire adult uh, creative life. We're working together, and her brother ATM Streetheart has helped us do all the design. But we're about to unveil a huge um, mosaic mural uh, for this new entrance at City North Finsbury Park Tube Station. And so that is a giant tree of life, the elm tree, because that's that. Um, not many people know that Seven Sisters Road is named after seven sisters who planted seven elm trees around an oak, around a walnut tree. This goes back to something like the Never 12th century. That. Nobody knows that. why, but we like the elm, elm tree and we like the idea of, you know, recognising how important nature is. So we've mosaic this giant elm tree and at the back of it, is all of the history that I could find about that area. But just within like a five minute walk of Finsbury Park Tube Station. And so I've kind of dug dug deep and went out and did a lot of research and spoke to a lot of people. Loads of it came from a guy, this kind of anarchist who works in the library at Finsbury Park. But yeah, just a way of reminding people of, you know, of, of everything that was interesting about that area, because especially as it goes into all these changes and they start rebuilding. And, you know, I think that it's very important that we learn the lessons from the past and we're reminded of how we got somewhere. And so if people want to see your work, where would they go? Well, they could come see my house because I spent 20 years mosaicing my own house. I mean, it, mind you, I don't need to say that because now whenever I open the door, there's literally people standing outside. And is, I mean, is that, would you say that's what you're most famous for, that the, the house? I mean, I know you've been covered quite... Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, it's, I used to say I was the best kept secret in Chiswick, but I don't think I can say that anymore. But yeah, I think the house is something that's gained traction a lot because of Instagram and, and that, you know, it's now... You know, I didn't even know I had a Google account until I opened the door and there was a family from Germany there asking me what time I opened. And then I said, I don't know what you're talking about. This is my house. And they said, but according to this, you're a museum and you open at 10. Oh, wow. And, so, and then I had to go onto Google and I realised they, 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 they have listed me and they've put my house there and they've said I'm a museum that opens five days a week. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I think it's taken on a, a, its own traction that I'm not responsible for. You know, I'm even shocked because I look at my own Google, whatever it is, and there's like 27,000 people looking at a picture of my house that I've not even put up there. <laughs> Amazing. And also, I I loved your elephants. Oh, yeah. The elephants were great, weren't they? The elephants were really great. I mean, I had such a naivety or I come with such a belief that I'm actually going to change the world through art or I really believe in it. And we, I mean, me and Nick Reynolds... Um, we spent three months with other people who helped us just working relentlessly on that elephant for no money, for no reason other than we really thought that we would shock the consciousness into like saving the elephant. But, you know, I think you have to have that kind of core belief to just carry a project like that through just to work 
you know, every day relentlessly with a team of people, day in, day out, not for any really monetary value, but just because you really hoped that you were going to do some good. But in reality, it got sold to Isabel Goldsmith and got took over to her retreat in Mexico. And she told me she was going to push it against a wall so you couldn't even see the skeleton side. So (laughs) it was a bit disappointing, to say the least. And just so that people can understand, so the elephant was how big? Uh, It was based on the... It wasn't actually life-size. It was just about the size of a teenage elephant. So it was big. It was a huge resin elephant. It was the first time that they'd taken an idea, I'm not quite sure what country from, but it was the first time they'd done those kind of generic big resin objects. Now you can't go to a city without them having their their horse or their frog or their banana or, you know, I mean... it. you had the cows, didn't you? Yes. Was it the bulls or the cows? It was the cows Cows. I think they copied from. Yes, it was the cows. And so I think that the elephants are one of the first ones they did. But yeah, now it's kind of like standard practice. So how long did that take? I mean, if if you take that... How long did it take to finish that piece? It took us three months, and that was a team of about five to six people working wow. six to seven days a week. Because I, th- I just don't think people appreciate how much time it takes to deliver something like that. Because that is a lot of that's a lot of hours. Yes, yes. And I was reading a really interesting article yesterday about craft, the science of craft, and how important it is to our well-being. And they was talking about that it's only in craft that you reach something that's called the flow, which is where skill and challenge are perfectly aligned. Because the whole idea of craft is that you're always getting slightly better. You're always slightly improving. And so I think for me, without necessarily knowing it, I spent hours and hours and hours in a form of my own personal art therapy making this work. Because, you know, when you get into that zone in craft, you're happy. Yeah. (laughs) You know, the rest of the world disappears and, you know, you're just very focused uh, on making something. Yeah, I was speaking to Mark Earls again on one of these episodes and he talked about just that focus of all of a sudden just losing time. Well, I, I mean, I think when I look at it now, that's what I really liked about all of the art practice I did. You know, I said I used to do photography and I used to spend like eight hours. I'd go upstairs in a dark room and the lights would go and I'd just be there for hours and hours and hours developing pictures. And and, and it was always that alchemy moment where, you know, it suddenly materialises in the um, developing water. And it's the same when I did stained glass or the same when you do mosaic. There's a Or when you put things in a kiln, there's this magic. You know, the magic happens when you either put it in a kiln and you open it or you put grout onto an image and you finally see it come together. And I just think all of those processes have always been like excited me and made me like think, oh, my God, this is magic. I can't wait. And I think I think you were just saying, you know, your you know, so you don't labels, but things shift for you. And you're saying you're now commercially, you're finding success as an artist. I mean, how, because that's one of the things that I think artists really struggle with. You know, I hear that quite a lot. Artists find it hard to get that balance between the commerciality and the art. I mean, what, 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 what flipped for you? What, 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 was there a moment that just made a difference or a, a type of different thinking? Not really. I just think that for a very long part of my life, uh, my creative path, I was quite anarchic, quite outspoken. It's actually quite hard to get the to get future jobs when all of your back catalogue involves death row and black panthers or is very political. Yeah. You know, I think in a sense, 
doing the elephants, doing uh, like they did a piece called Mary Bamber for Liverpool. I did a lot of high profile work that added to um, my portfolio. But I really think actually two things that really helped me was a having my work in the Victorian Albert Museum which, you know, gave me gravitas and all, and winning the Churchill because I won the uh, Winston Churchill Travelling Fellowship. So I think these things enabled my CV to, like, look really good. <laughs> and I think because I have specialised for, like, literally the last eight to ten years in the, the tr image transfer of how to print onto tiles, and I think... It's interesting because when I used to apply for uh, jobs, because I've been applying for public art jobs for 20, 25 years. And back in the day when me and Karen and Mark used to apply, we'd always lose out and they'd always want big lumps of metal or, you know, we weren't in vogue. We were really fighting against the tide when we used to talk about community involvement, about community participation, about really having an ethos of trying to represent the people who's where the work was going. And now... When I look at a job application, it's like every single one talks about participatory arts or talks about heritage. Yeah. You know, when I started, you had art. You know, the council had an art department. Yeah. Now they have heritage. It's culture and heritage. Now all public art. Now there wasn't an M, a degree that you could do in craft. There wasn't a degree you could do in preparatory arts. It didn't exist. You did fine art, films. You did fine art, which was painting, printing or sculpture. And so like years later, all the things that I kind of believed in uh, and used to shout about and me and my friends used to talk about in interviews. Now it's so in vogue. Now you can't get the job unless you have that. But the trouble is, is a lot of it is lip service. You know, a lot yeah. of it is just... Oh, you've got to pretend that you've done some community uh, work or, you know, there's yeah, been yeah. some consultation. I mean, it's frightening the jobs I've had where they want the design in before the consultation, yeah. you know. And so I'm very conscious of that fact that, you know, uh, people may ask for things, whether they really want it is a different matter. So is it fair to say uh, you have been a pioneer and as part of being pioneers, you have to have patience? Well, I'd like, well... I've never really thought about it, about being a pioneer, but uh, I guess I am in a certain way. And yeah, I mean, I like to think like the same with fashion. If you wait 25 years, it comes back in. <laughs> you know, I've still got my same clothes from 25 years ago. And yeah, I think it's nice. I mean, it, it does help me get the job when I can show them that I've been doing this for 25 years and this is my ethos and always has been how I've worked and what I've wanted to do. Great, that's amazing. So let's come to the big question uh, of the show. So what's the best piece of advice you've ever been given and by whom? Well, the second letter I ever got from Herman Wallace, who is um, was a revolutionary Black Panther who spent over four decades in solitary confinement at Louisiana State Penitentiary. When I wrote to him, I think the second letter he ever replied to me he said the essence of your life is only measured in how you can do good for others and it was in a reply to the fact that I was talking about that I'd written to my friend Lewis who was in on death row and that I was explaining how my experience of writing to him had really benefited my life you know it benefited my life for far more than it had benefited his and Herman was writing and saying well that's as it should be that's the way it is. Whatever you give, you get back three times. And 
in in the letter he said the essence of your life is only measured in how you can do good for others and is that would you say that that has that became an inspiration for you to do more well i mean what how did you take that advice was it just how have you used that advice since? Well, I've put it on a taxi. I've put it on my house. I've put it on <laughs> tiles. It resides in Argentina. I mean, I, I took the actual advice and I put it on tiles and I spread it far and wide. But I think in a way it was just a a beautiful way of, of explaining to me what I'd already learned in a way. Because I think before I got involved in pl- prison writing, before I ever picked up a big issue that saw an advert for human rights. Can you befriend a person on death row? Before that, I did community art. I'd done fine art, but I'd kind of given up. I think mainly because I don't, I didn't have a strong ego enough. I didn't have a drive. It's like, it's like you leave art college and you think, well, what now? <laughs> Who's going to pay me to do this? How does this sit? If, you know, you just, that's the trouble at that time. You'd leave art college with this degree and think, well, what next? And so, for me, I went off travelling. For me, I did. I became a tax collector for a year. I worked in Pizza Hut for six months. I just used to get a job, go off, travel, take drugs, have wild, wild trips all around uh, Central America. And then I came back and then I kind of thought, well, I was going to do... I was going to be a care worker. I kind of thought I'm not really cut out for art. I'll do care. And, and then I ended up doing community mosaics, but I think after writing to someone on death row and having found injustice, really, you know, I come really close to me, see what my friends were going through. That's what flipped me into like making art, but doing craftivism, realising that I had a voice and I could use it. And so I think that really, really um, propelled me. It totally changed the direction of my life, I would say. Amazing. Um, so... Um... Let's talk about creativity. You talked about, you know, you're, you're, you always knew you wanted to be creative. I mean, how would you define creativity? I don't think I always knew I wanted to be creative. I was just always brought up with craft. You see, my mother, my mother learned to knit when she was four in the subways during the world, during the Blitz. She was four. She learned in the dark and she learned on four needles how to make soldiers socks. Wow. And and my mother was like to knitting what I am to mosaics. I mean, she dedicated her life to it. She taught a lot of the famous knitters like Debbie Bliss. You know, there was a time when four days a week she went to all those knitting places at John Lewis and taught all the women how to knit. And at the same time, gave them advice because that's what people don't understand. When you get people doing craft together, they sit around, you know, it enables dialect and conversations to start which is why it's a great medium to work with all different groups because I've done piloted schemes in um, DIY craft and craftivism with young people who had mental health problems and what you find is if you sit people in a room together and try and get them to talk they'll all be like frozen but if they've all got their heads down and they're all sewing or they're all making something conversation starts more because you've not got eye contact and you're engaged in something and so when I look back I see that's what my mother did her in a whole life she went around to John Lewis and places and sat with ladies and taught them how to knit and she literally died knitting and so I think she kind of put that in me even though she always said she practiced benign neglect, which means she just basically let me run free. 
she always gave me craft things, you know, I was always making things. And that was always like, I used to live in my own little world of like making, 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 making. And I think that just continued for me. I had such low self-esteem and I had so many problems. Uh, um, but the craft and the application and the desire and the, under, and the understanding that if I went back into that process, it would help me has, has stayed with me throughout life. And it's amazing because you, um, we have the Creative Superpowers book and one of the superpowers is makeup. That's the first time I've really heard that use of making in terms of just allowing people to be focused. We talk about the, you know, the importance of making in terms of the brain and letting the brain focus on something else and letting ideas percolate. But just, I, I love that as a form of therapy. I mean, it's a really lovely way of doing it. Yeah, no, I mean, I think people really have to understand how powerful that is. You know, I've, I've had 20 years experience of, of teaching craft or teaching art with across the board in orphanages with in you know people with mental health problems you know uh people who are homeless and it just is like we talked about there's the meditative mindfulness quality of actual the practice but more importantly it's bringing people together that can create something that they make together it's the part participation in all that um, and, and I've seen it time and time again how you know when people come together to make something together it will break down certain barriers and enable them just to you know just to have a closeness that they might not have normally because of all of our other problems but I think because I'm so aware of my own use of art therapy and I'm very vocal about my own problems in the past I think I have such a great, you know, belief in it now and can see the power of it to help others. Amazing. Um, how do you get your inspiration? I don't think I have... I don't know. I just think the way that my world and my life and my mind work is I'm just always thinking in a certain way that involves making. I don't know how I get my inspiration. Usually I get a job or a remit... And that just fires my brain up, you know, to just think, oh, my God, this is so exciting. How am I going to present this information in the most interesting way? But I'm kind of guessing, I mean, one of the things that I think certainly the creatives that I meet, the thing that really unifies them is this idea of curiosity. And, you know, just you just you saying, you know, actually, you didn't know what you can do in university, you went travelling. You know, that for me really, really sits at the heart of that, which is you would just want to discover new things. Yeah, I mean, I, I, one thing I would always say about me is that I always evolve. I never sit still. I've always gone, you know, I'm 53 and still going to college, still learning courses, you know. I, I've always been that person that's like, oh, my God, what's this? I don't know, let's find out. And I think I carry that enthusiasm with my public artwork. I think, like, when I got the job to do... I was the first ever uh, artist in residence for Shakespeare's Birthplace Trust. And when I went to that interview, I really didn't think I was going to get it because they asked me, you know, what do you think of Shakespeare? And I was like, mm, to be honest, don't really like it. It's like... <laughs> doesn't really do anything for me. I mean, I, I know Merchant to Venice and I know Othello because I studied that for O-level and A-level, but the rest is impenetrable. And I think, you know, the fact is, is they actually gave me the job because they realised that 
the fact that I don't know something is kind of good because I come into something from a like, okay, I don't know anything. And then I kind of try to see what's interesting to me and then take that interest and that enthusiasm and try and then relay it to other people. And I think that's so, yeah, one of the other superpowers is teacher. And so I just love that, um, you know, the Alvin Toffler quote, one of my favourite quotes is, the literate of the 21st century will not be those who cannot read and write. It'll be those that can't learn, unlearn and relearn. Yes. Yeah, and actually that ability to reinvent and need to reinvent is fundamental. Yes, absolutely. We need to keep kind of, you know, making... Because we're, I keep thinking we're just moving so fast, you know, generationally with, with like, the way things are changing. Or it's The evolution is very, very fast from, like, one generation of my mother's generation to what my children's generation is. It's like it's kind of unimaginable how far we how quickly we've traveled without really taking on board what these might mean like i'm always terrified about my children and social media and how much it's a construct now you know i think our generation have a bit when we look at social media there's part of us that knows what it is we have a kind of a we kind of understand it but for a generation that doesn't have that cynicism or that understanding or or a life a life lived before I really worry about the world that we're creating and the world that our kids are creating and how much nowadays we create a social construct that we're trying to live up to you know when yeah, I think yeah, about yeah. all these people having plastic surgery so they can look like their yeah. face tune picture yeah you know I think all of that is really kind of a bit worrying and also I mean the the the, the mental health elements of it and that pressure and living in that world where you have to look you feel like you have to look something it's just dialed up hasn't it oh yeah i think we're really cranking up mental health stuff for young people we're you know it's almost like you just think how much can you make people sit in this before they all go insane yeah and so you talked about learning so i'd love to know in the last 12 months what's the most interesting thing you've learned Whoa! Well, I've learned a load of history about Finsbury Park that I didn't know about, which is really, you know, you know, I didn't realise. It's always interesting to see what a place was like, and Finsbury Park was like the epicentre for culture and music. And, you know, I knew about the George Forby and I knew about the rainbow. I mean, it's slightly, I'm slightly too young. It's my brother's generation that, you know, were down at the rainbow and... and but I didn't really realise how far back that went with the empire and, and, and the old school stuff. And it's interesting to see how a place, you think, oh, yeah, all this music and industry, but it comes from this very long history. It's been there for, you know, from the Victorian time. This was a place you went to. And so, yeah, I'm very knowledgeable at the moment about Finsbury Park. <laughs> Amazing. It's always good to... I, I mean, I... I, I have lived very close to Finsbury Park and obviously being an Arsenal fan, uh, I spent quite a lot of time Yeah, well, being the thing is, and like, I was like, I had to research all of this and, and what I tried to look at is because I'm not interested in football. I mean, I know that's terrible. I don't, It's you not know, terrible at all. I just, it's just not something that really interests me, but I understand the passion that everybody else has. And so when I looked at the history of Finsbury Park, say, what interested me that in the Second World War that team lost more of its players than any other team and that they lost I think it was nine players or that I thought that that in that history told us something that history told us that the football team used to be much more of a the community in the sense that if war broke out tomorrow there's no way that 
Beckham's going to the front line, yeah, is there? Yeah, Do you know yeah, what yeah, I mean? Yeah. There's no way that our, <laughs> our footballers now would go and serve in the trenches Amazing. or die. But I thought it was really interesting because it shows you where that kind of passion comes from and that fact that they did. They, died, they, they lost a lot of life. And so... When I try to do archival work and look at the history, I tried. There's such a small space to put history in this that it's kind of history that's going to tell you a lot more about things or, or illuminate what a period of time was like. Okay, so uh, what can we expect from you in the next 12 months? Oh my God, I'm so busy. It's like last year I was doing Aberdeen and now it's like I'm doing all the bees because I just got a job yesterday. My new job is in Bristol starts in January finishes in March I am so excited because I'm going to be representing the rich archive of the single parents action network organization that started in Bristol but now is a nationwide organization representing um, single parents so really excited to do that because I am a single parent and then so I'll do that then in end of March we should be installing this new work for Finsbury Park which is at the new train entrance to Finsbury Park then I go straight into a huge job in Boston Lincolnshire where we've got two huge navigational buoys which are like three meters by three meters and I'm attempting to try and uh, make a whole group of the best community public mosaic artists in the UK are going to come to help That's me amazing. hopefully and we're going to mosaic those two and put them into it's part of a, an overall there's six uh, boys that have been given to three different artists and it will form a trail around Boston. That's amazing. Very which is good. great because, yeah, it's another great... Th it's a great big three-dimensional thing, but it's not a lump of resin for a change. It's a beautiful old metal navigational boy. Great. Well, thank you, Kerry. It sounds like you're going to have an amazing next 12 months. Well, busy uh, as always. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I really love your work. I mean, I, I've even just bought some off you. I know. Uh, thank and you. I, and I've loved chatting to you today. So oh, thank, thank you. you for having me. It was a real pleasure. Thank pleasure. you. Thanks. If you enjoyed today's show, then do show us some love by tweeting your comments to at WeAreUtopians or at YellyF with a hashtag BPOAE. Or just connect with me, Daniele Fiendarka, on LinkedIn. We would welcome feedback or any suggestions for future guests. And hello to Jason Isaacs.